I want to take up today two intelligent but uh, non-professional responses to my book. By saying non-professional, I don't mean in any way to disparage. These are uh, intelligent, well-read people. But I uh, do want to take them as a study in contrast, both in the, the content of their critical remarks about my book, the methods that they use, and the degree of civility. So first I want to take up a man calling himself the cuck philosopher. I have no commentary on what the, the self-ascribed label means here. And he is uh, quite consistently negative on my book. He argues that I misrepresent both modernism and postmodernism, and that of all of the major figures I uh, cover in the book, about 40 of them, that all of them basically are misrepresented and badly so. I sense from many of his comments that he's a postmodernism-friendly person, but in this review he argues as a modernist. He argues that there are facts about the thinkers and that the history is well known. The authors said what they said. There are right and wrong interpretations of each, and we can know the truth, and it matters. So I listened to uh, the uh, podcast review for about the first 30 minutes, and I've uh, chosen six issues that the Cuck philosopher emphasizes, and I think uh, think rightly so. These are the ones, there are others, but these are the ones I'm going to respond to due to the emphasis that he, uh, he puts on them. First and foremost, the status of Kant in the history of philosophy, and then especially in my Explaining Postmodernism book. Is Kant an advocate of the Enlightenment? Is he a philosopher of reason and objectivity? Cuck, rather, is on the side of arguing that Kant is, in fact, an Enlightenment, reason-oriented, objectivist, small-o philosopher. And by contrast, in my book, I do argue that, in fact, he is not, especially not fundamentally, and that Kant marks a turning point particularly on epistemological matters, to the counter-enlightenment that came to hold sway, at least on my analysis, over the course of the next two centuries. Now, in the book, I do go out of my way to say that this is a controversial interpretation of Kant. I do quote a couple of uh, important names, people who think that Kant is an enlightenment philosopher and an advocate of reason. But then I go on to give some quotations from Kant, and then I make a sustained argument over the course of many pages in explaining postmodernism for why Kant is not really uh, fundamentally an, ad an, an advocate, rather, of, of any of those things. Now, the striking thing to me is that for the, uh, the, the strength and the vehemence of his reaction to my book, it strikes me that this is the first time that Cuck has come across this interpretation, that is to say that the interpretation that Kant is not really a, deeply an Enlightenment philosopher. And he is, uh, you know, at one point correct to point out that if there is one claim that, uh, in my book, that PhD reviewers are likely to challenge, it's this one about Kant. And that's exactly right. Kant is a figure about when we can find deeply divided interpretation. The difference, though, is that the PhD philosophers who have reviewed my book, the nine of them that I know of, they're, they're not shocked, right, that there is this other Kant as undercutting the Enlightenment interpretation. Instead, what they do is they will raise that interpretation, uh, show that they're aware of it. They will 
present it, and then, of course, they will argue against it, saying that that's a wrong interpretation. Instead, what we get from Cuck is uh, just he seems merely surprised that anyone could even possibly believe that. And this uh, suggests that this is not to say which interpretation is correct, but that at least Cuck needs to do some more research and is perhaps premature in uh, in reaching his conclusion, and particularly the, the vehement. So he kind of just leaves it at that. He doesn't summarize my argument, and I'm not going to hear, right, to repeat the 10 or 12 pages of argument. So what we seem just to have then is a he said this and he said that uh, controversy. But let me just uh, say a couple of things to point listeners uh, in, in a in the direction of what should be the next step. I'm not going to make the claim that this interpretation of Kant is original to me, this one that Kant is anti-enlightenment fundamentally, that he's undercutting reason and objectivity. But I would uh, just point out that my interpretation of Kant is Schopenhauer's interpretation. It's also Kierkegaard's interpretation, and it's Nietzsche's interpretation. And that's not to do any sort of appeal to authority. Of course, Schopenhauer, Kierkegaard, and Nietzsche might all be wrong. Point just is that there is a long-standing interpretation lineage with respect to Kant that sees him as as undercutting the Enlightenment's uh, pretensions as all of these thinkers see it. I also would mention figures whom uh, one should know about Mendelssohn. Moses Mendelssohn, uh, also a major figure of the 18th century, who uh, read Kant and was aghast arguing that Kant was the all-destroyer, and this is primarily for religious reasons. Kant is trying to make room for a kind of faith and kind of uh, belief in God as a regulative idea out there in the in the real world, and Mendelssohn, I think, is quite right to say that that Kantian move is actually devastating to actual religion. Actual religion wants there to be a real Kant, one whom we can know and prove the existence of. So Kant's, uh, this is not quite uh, appropriate to, or anachronistic terminology, Kant's anti-realist turn, right, or the Copernican turn that is a, a kind of subjectivism, I think Mendelssohn is quite right to say is uh, is a devastating move. I should also mention, uh, interestingly, uh, Kleist, a, a younger humanist and uh, enlightenment enthusiastic thinker, full of uh, full of energy as a young man, who upon reading Kant, became profoundly depressed, uh, realizing that all of his Enlightenment aspirations were undercut and likely to be for naught, and who has large part uh, due to his depression uh, resulting from this uh, ended up committing suicide right, relatively young. So there is a, a, an interpretation out there, and I would just recommend that uh, before one, anyone makes up their minds about Kant, make sure you read both sides of the argument. There's some smart people on both sides. And just one quotation from, Kant, from Nietzsche right, on, on Kant, uh, and this is one that is in, in the book, so it should be news to Cuck. Quote, as soon as Kant would begin to exert a popular influence, we should find it reflected in the form of a gnawing and crumbling skepticism and relativism. Unquote. That is to say, on Nietzsche's view, Kant is uh, advocating some fundamental positions that undercut any sort of enlightenment advocacy of reason as competent and objective. And again, now, maybe Nietzsche is wrong in his interpretation of Kant. Maybe Schopenhauer also is wrong. Maybe Hicks is wrong. Okay, fine, but we need to know what the interpretation is and uh, and why it's wrong. Now, I'm 
making uh, heavy weather of this point about uh, Kant, because it's, uh, it's the most important one uh, in my book, but with the possible exception of Rousseau. Uh, but Kant does continue with the same pattern with all of the other figures about which Hegel, Nietzsche, Heidegger, and so on. And uh, you know, when he reaches the conclusion that all of them have been misrepresented by Hicks and uh, just you know, shows what a, what a bad philosopher Hicks is, well, okay, uh, maybe, but he doesn't so cite my quotations, he doesn't summarize my argument, and you know, my sense really just is that he's just read one article or book on each of these major figures, or maybe that's what he heard from his professors in, in college, and seems to be entirely unaware that on all of these major figures, there are scholarly controversies. You know, is Hegel a liberal or is he deeply authoritarian? Is Nietzsche finally an advocate merely of amoral power play, or is he best interpreted as an anti-authoritarian individualist? Heidegger, he was a Nazi. Well, is his Nazism irrelevant to his ba basic philosophy, or is it baked into it? So, if you find yourself methodologically saying, hey, I read this person saying the opposite of what Hicks is saying, that's not enough. You have to look at both or all interpretations, particularly in a formal review. Critique the one, defend the other. And of course, in a, in a formal review, it's a, it's a responsibility to do so for your own benefit, to be fair to the author, and to let the, uh, the listeners know what, what, the, uh, what the issues actually are. Now, there's an interesting uh, related issue here that, in a way, it doesn't matter what Hicks thinks the right interpretation of Kant is or, or what Cuck thinks the right interpretation of Kant is. The more important issue is what did the postmodern thinkers think about Kant? Did they uh, interpret Kant as uh, an enemy of their viewpoint, as this Enlightenment guy who, with their advocate of postmodernism, they are trying to undercut and set aside? Or do they see Kant as an important part of the story, the intellectual lineage that they are drawing upon? And what I would suggest is that, uh, particularly in the case of Rorty and Lyotard, I think those are the two best philosophers of the, of the postmoderns, and Rorty in his philosophy in the mirror of nature, kind of a long intellectual lineage, does exactly that. That we are working within a broadly uh, Kantian framework, and if we take that Kantian framework seriously, that it leads to Hegel, and leads to Nietzsche, it leads to Heidegger, and we should properly end up in postmodernism. And we get a, a, a similar story from Lyotard, but of course Lyotard's coming out of a continental philosophical tradition, whereas Rorty is coming out of a more analytic and uh, pragmatic tradition. Now, how I think to argue appropriately about Kant, let me just say, uh, I think there was a Cato Unbound publication a couple of years ago now that does a really nice job methodologically of taking up this issue. So, for example, you know, does Kant's Enlightenment reputation include kind of a classically liberal political philosophy? And they invited four PhD philosophers, I'm one of them, two on each side of the debate, to argue whether Kant uh, fundamentally is an Enlightenment classical liberal or not. And uh, I'll put the link in the notes for those who want to, uh, to read a, what I think is a really a first-rate exchange. Are you looking for a new book to dive into? Then check out audiobooks.com. With over 150,000 premium titles, they have an incredible selection of books to get stuck into, whatever your genre of preference. 
Listening to audiobooks makes reading incredibly easy and enjoyable. Not only do you have instant access to thousands of titles, but powerful narrators can bring the text to life, often giving a book more meaning than just flicking through the pages itself. Do more with audiobooks and start your next book while multitasking, doing the laundry, taking a drive, going for a walk, doing exercise or something else. With audiobooks, you can even read your books with your eyes closed. Sign up today for a 30-day free trial and get three audiobooks completely free. Go to www.audiobooks.com and click sign up to get started. And please help support the podcast by entering our promo code, OpenCollege, which is all one word. Fall in love with books again with audiobooks.com. And while you're online, please show your support for the podcast by leaving a view on your favorite media player. Now back to the podcast. All right, let me move on to another issue, a second issue Cuck raises, and it has to do with labels and categorization schemes, and uh, he takes a systematic issue with how I'm using deconstruction and postmodernism more generally, and various figures who, about whom uh, any number of labels might properly be ascribed as a post-colonial thinker, as a deconstructionist, as a radical feminist, as a postmodernist, right, and so on, to which I would add, you know, neopragmatism and post-structuralism and others. So, uh, we always do have standard issues about labels. It's uh, it's hard, particularly when you get to high-level abstractions, and particularly in the case when we're dealing with postmodernists who are, as a result of their philosophical style, reflexively opposed to uh, labels and anti-anti-labeling. But let me point out uh, uh, kind of two sub-issues in this this standard problem. It's a classic problem now when we, anytime we want to argue about postmodernism and what we mean by it and who is and is not a a postmodern. One is the levels of abstraction issue. And postmodernism is meant to be a very high level of abstraction, contrasting a higher set of philosophical views and perhaps a movement and perhaps a school of thinkers associated with, with that label. It's meant to be contrasted with another extraordinarily high level abstraction, modernism. And each of these are going to have uh, dozens of sub-issues that one has to sort through, and, and each of them are at different levels of abstraction. So by analogy, for example, example, if you're going to categorize someone as a religious thinker or not, that's a very high level of abstraction. But at a lesser of a le- uh, level of abstraction, there are Christian religious thinkers. And then within Christianity, right, there's Protestant thinkers. And then within Protestantism, there's Baptists. And within Baptists, there's Southern Baptists. So the same thing is true for deconstruction, postmodern, neopragmatism, and so on. Often these terms are used at different levels of analysis. So when a thinker is using one of those labels, particularly if it's a professional person trying to be careful, you have to make sure that you understand at what scale in the level of abstraction this person is trying to use this label. And that means that in critique, we have to be careful. We have to, you know, be wrong if we're arguing about religion. We say, you know, someone says, here's you know, a Baptist, right, making a particular point uh, where he's criticizing other Christians, right? Or uh, it's also wrong to stay you know, going the other way around, saying someone's making a general statement about Christianity and not realizing that there are lots of detailings and qualifications that might be necessary before you apply it to the Baptist. So when I draw the parallel then, when I am using postmodernism, right, in the book, I am 
as careful as I can be to use that at a high level of abstraction and to use it only on points that I think all of the major issues and all of the major people whom we standardly think of as postmodern or swimming in the postmodern lake thinkers uh, are, are, are willing to use. And then I'm also careful to say that there are subversions of postmodernism. And uh, so I start using labels like saying there's postmodernism in general, but then this is a more Kierkegaardian or a Machiavellian or a Kantian subversion of postmodernism. So take those sub-abstraction labels seriously. And also, I think I'm careful several times throughout the book to say, while I do think of uh, Leotard, Rorty, Foucault and Derrida as the as the big four, that they do of course have differences amongst each other. And so at various points I do say, you know, here are some postmodern themes in general, but Rorty takes things in this particular direction. Foucault goes off in a slightly different direction over here, as do Derrida and Leotard. So uh, ascending up and down level of abstraction in different parts of the taxonomical tree, uh, my view is that Cuck needs to be a lot more careful. Now, there's another issue, though, uh, uh, and this is another another hard one, and, and we can certainly have arguments about this. So if we're going to say, here is a broad label, or here is a, a, a movement, and when we recognize that there's 20 or 30 or 40 suppositions that are being articulated and positions are being taken, where do we, uh, to use some physics metaphors, where do we see the critical mass of this movement, or the, the center of gravity of that movement, uh, you know, kind of recognizing that there are going to be more peripheries, right, and uh, and things that are not quite at the center of, of gravity. And this is, of course, to speak uh, metaphorically. So then to get non-metaphorically, suppose we say in a broad philosophical position, there's going to be 20 elements that have to be. You have to say something about metaphysics and epistemology and human nature and ethics and social philosophy and so forth. And so we come up with here what we think are 20 elements that will go into a, a comprehensive philosophy. And then we say, okay, so here's what we would take the ideal type representative of, say, the Enlightenment or the ideal type representative of Platonism to believe on all 20 of those issues. What do we say about a thinker who accepts only 18 out of the 20 or 14 out of the 20? At what point do we say, no, this person is to be read out of the movement or we need to have a new label for that? And that's one issue. Uh, is it 16 out of the 20 is good enough or is it 18 out of the 20? Or do you want to be a real purist and say, no, no, it's got to be 20 out of 20? But then there's an additional issue that we might say that of those 20 issues, not all 20 of them are equally important. We might say here are the five issues or the six issues that really are fundamental. The others are important, but they are of secondary importance. And as long as the person accepts these five or six, they're in the movement. And you know, if they uh, show some slipperiness right, or, or they disagree with respect to uh, positions 18, 19, and 20 that are more at the periphery, that's not yet enough to read them out of the movement. Now, the point is that this is a hard issue, but you need to take it up uh, before you just complain that you don't like how someone is using the uh, the other labels, particularly if the person is explicitly saying, here are the issues that I think are the important ones, and here are the, uh, the 15 or 20 or so that I think are going into the elements as well. 
Now, there's one uh, important issue here. Cuck takes issue with my uh, labeling uh, Andrea Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon as swimming in the postmodern lake. Feminism, of course, is a very broad label. Postmodern feminism is one particular subspecies, and of course, there's dozens of subversions of feminism out there as well. And uh, we, of course, can have ongoing debates about where the bound boundaries are are drawn here. And uh, when I turn to the other critics of my book, the multiversity, I'm going to take up this issue of of uh, why I uh, categorized Dworkin and McKinnon as uh, swimming in the postmodern lake, because they also disagree with my characterization here. So uh, it's an interesting set of issues here. But note, we always have arguments uh, you know, about uh, who is and who isn't a conservative, a liberal, a libertarian, a fascist, right, and so on. And the same thing comes up on all religious matters. So this is a, a healthy part of the movement. Let's try to have a good open debate about it rather than just uh, quick and dirty, angry dismissals of how other people are using labels. All right, issue number three, another fun one. Cuck is uh, upset with my characterization of the Enlightenment and modernism and, and postmodernism, but he also thinks I have missed the boat badly on pre-modernism and how I'm using that, and particularly who is and isn't a medieval thinker. Now, of course, this is another big sweeping categorization scheme, and it is uh, important to my analysis, uh, outside even of my explaining postmodernism, to see a lot of philosophical issues, not as dualities, but really as trichotomies. And so uh, I think uh, pre-modern categorizations uh, as an overall philosophical viewpoint, uh, modernist and postmodernism, that there's a lot of uh, value to uh, a high level of abstraction that way. Uh, so for me, the, the trichotomy matters. And, but that then means that we start using labels like supernaturalism, mysticism, faith, and so on. And I use those in characterizing what I take to be a pre-modern metaphysics and epistemology, and Cuck takes issue with uh, how I'm using those labels, and uh, more specifically, he uh, takes me to task for not attending to Thomas Aquinas as a medieval philosopher, but obviously one who is a philosopher of, of reason and not at all an advocate of mysticism or blind, crude faith and, and so on. All right, so let me say a few things, because this really is a, is a fun, fun set of issues here. I will put in the, uh, in the notes that I've uh, got a podcast in this series, um, the fifth in the series, where I take some conservative thinkers to task for overlooking and soft-selling the Dark Ages. And so I have some discussion there of the history of uh, medieval philosophy and uh, history more, more broadly, and uh, why we should divide what's sometimes taken to be a broad division of, uh, of historical time from the fall of the Roman Emperor Empire to, say, the Renaissance and the Reformation, about a thousand years into the Dark Ages and the High Middle Ages, and I think that's an, an important distinct that we should attend to here. So let me say a few things about the concept of faith, and uh, then a few things about, uh, about Aquinas. And, and I think, actually, with respect to Aquinas, probably Cuck philosophy and I 
agree on uh, on uh, more than we disagree. But first, uh, faith is one of those uh, uh, concepts that we need to straighten out. Sometimes it's used as a noun, where we just mean a person has a set of beliefs, typically religious beliefs, that's your person's faith. But philosophically, most of the time we use faith as a verb, that is to say, a method of coming to acquire beliefs or reinforce one's beliefs in, in, uh, in the first half. And it's this latter part, or this latter way of using the word faith that I'm using in my explaining postmodernism. That is to say, you believe something uh, because you accept it uh, not on the basis of evidence that you've independently assessed or any sort of rational, logical argument. Rather, you accept the authority of scripture or that you accept the authority of some people who have social standing in your religious community. And so that, I'm arguing, is the predominant epistemological stance of what I'm calling pre-modernism, and that what makes a person a modern thinker and, and what is characteristic of early modern philosophy is a strong challenge and a fundamental rejection of that method of coming to belief. And what's interesting here is that I do think from the period of the 400s to the 1100s or 1200s or so, notice that's from the decline of the Roman emperor, Christianity comes to be the official religion of the Roman emperor. So it's a seven or 800 year chunk of time that is the dominant epistemology. One is expected to believe on faith, all of the important truths about the world, and of course those truths are religious truths. Now what then of course starts to happen is that as we get into the 10 hundreds and the 11 hundreds, the Christian West starts to be a little more open to other traditions outside. It comes to become aware of Arab traditions and through them much more of the Greek and Roman tradition. And the epistemology does shift where faith of course is still first, but after the fact you try to come up with some arguments. You try to use reason, but it's after the fact justification for a faith position that you have often already adopted. By the time we get into the 1200s, though, and here Aquinas, I think, is very important. Notice that he's like 800 years after Christianity becomes the official religion, so we're 800 years into the medieval era, and I think he marks a targeting point where Aquinas is arguing that, yes, faith is important, but reason is also important, and they're both equally legitimate ways of getting to the truth. And then after that, there's a further shift that what we should do is not adopt faith at all, but rather reason is primary and reason alone, the more empirical and more rationalistic methods and so forth by the time we get to the late 1500s. And this is where I think Francis Bacon, Rene Descartes, and then a little bit later, a generation Locke marked the decisive shift. And now we're late 1500s getting on into the 1600s. It's reason alone. It's, and it's your reason as an individual thinker, not just accepting faith and tradition and not even using reason as an after the fact justification. So yes, I do think Aquinas is an important transition from a pure pre-modernism to, uh, to early modernism. It's also important to note you know, that uh, Aquinas is uh, in the 1200s uh, in a generation where Aristotelianism is making a comeback and there are various interpretations of, uh, of Aristotelianism and they are uh, all seen as uh, threats to uh, orthodox teachings that are based on very 
pre-modern faith and mysticism and revelation and authority epistemological traditions. And Aquinas is a champion of the new Aristotelians, and it got uh, got him into hot water. While Aquinas was teaching in, in Paris, the Bishop of Paris listed 13 propositions and excommunicated some people, all of them Aristotelian and Averroist interpretations of, of Aristotelianism, threatened uh, to excommunicate many others who were advocating them. So the pre-modernism that I am identifying and contrasting to modernism is the same one that was attacking, uh, or was being attacked rather, by Aquinas's modernizing Aristotelianism. Friedrich Nietzsche was famous for his statement that God is dead and his provocative account of master and slave moralities, and also for the fact that Adolf Hitler and the Nazis claimed that Nietzsche was one of their great inspirations. Were the Nazis right to do so, or did they misappropriate Nietzsche's philosophy? Professor Stephen Hicks's concisely written book, Nietzsche and the Nazis, based on the 2006 documentary, corrects many widespread misconceptions about Nietzsche, giving a fascinating and easy-to-understand analysis of Nietzsche's work, asking and answering a number of questions, such as what were the key elements of Hitler and the National Socialist political philosophy? How did the Nazis come to power in a nation as educated and civilised as Germany? What was Friedrich Nietzsche's philosophy? The philosophy of live dangerously, and that which does not kill us makes us stronger? And to what extent did Nietzsche's philosophy provide a foundation for the horrors perpetrated by the Nazis? Professor Hicks demonstrates his mastery of this subject using quotes and critical analysis that prove his points and show the true linkage between Nietzsche and the Nazis, and how philosophical ideas move the world. Get your copy of Nietzsche and the Nazis by Stephen Hicks on Amazon.com today. And while you're online, please leave a review for the Open College podcast hosted by Hicks himself on iTunes or Stitcher. Now back to the podcast. All right. Fourth point I want to, uh, to mention here. The uh, philosopher takes uh, issue with uh, a quotation I have from Hitler and then more broadly with my uh, arguing that Hitler was uh, kind of a kind of collectivist and that between the collectivist right, as I'm labeling them, and the collectivist left, including people who were Marxism, that they're not really very much uh, different from each other. And in the context of that, I uh, have a quotation from Hitler arguing that the, uh, the Nazis and the Marxists were basically one and the same. And I think that's uh, that's true. Of course, there are lots of ways in which they hated each other and they killed each other and otherwise were nasty to each other. It's quite right to say that it's uh, there are other issues on which there are important differences between the two of them. But the context in uh, in my book is to argue that in the European right and the European left, that both of them are anti-rationalist and both of them are anti-individualist and uh, both of them are enemies of enlightenment liberalism, that they're both sounding themes of group conflict, power, violence, and so on. So the Hitler quote is seconded by quotations from Goebbels, who also had a PhD. And of course, you might not have much respect for Goebbels, but there are other PhDs, Oswald Spengler, Muller, Vandenbroek, and so forth, very well-educated men who are typically on the collectivist right, who also, as a matter of philosophical principle, saw many fundamental similarities between the kind of rightist collectivist political philosophy that they were advocating and 
Marxism. So I recommend my book Nietzsche and the Nazis for a detailing of this. This is a, a one or two section theme in my postmodernism book, but it's an important one that's worth flagging, particularly since, again, it's a button pushing one as uh, evidenced by the cup philosopher's response. Uh, next point I want to make, and I think this will have to be the last one before I move on to uh, the multiversity crew. Um, Cuck is quite exercised by my book's publishing history. So I want to say a few things about the publishing history and the, the professional reviews. Uh, there have been, to my knowledge, nine reviews of the book by PhD philosophers uh, published in scholarly journals. I'll uh, provide the link in the in the notes, and it's at the uh, scholarly reviews section of the uh, Explaining Postmodernism page at my my website. And all of the nine are positive, except for one. I was certainly say that they're all very positive, except for one, which uh, gives it a, a, a mixed review, even though, and this is you know, part of standard scholarship, each one does raise some fun and interesting points of debate. All of the philosophers I'm uh, discussing, uh, as I've mentioned, there are competing schools of interpretation, and so it's an ongoing scholarly project to, uh, to try to get things just right. So Kant, for example, figures largely, Foucault figures largely, and in the PhD reviewers, the two who are most in disagreement with me, it's the Kant issue and the Foucault issue, uh, even though they both assess the book positively overall. And I do have a podcast forthcoming in which I'm going to take up the professional responses, especially on the issue of objectivity in Kant, which is a very deep one, postmodernism's relationship to, uh, to classical Marxism, especially after neo-Marxism and cultural Marxism, and uh, Foucault, uh, whether uh, it's best to interpret him as a kind of cynical libertarian, anti-authoritarian type, or whether he's really deeply an anti-humanist. But then Cuck takes issue, is quite exercised about the book's publishing history, and even though the history of it is uh, is public, he gets it mostly wrong, just in the first place. The first edition was published by Scholarly Publishing, and it did undergo the usual peer review and editing process. So uh, I don't know what the complaint there is. I had a five-year contract with Scholarly. It came out in 2004, and that Scholarly uh, contract was up in 2009. And I emphasize that just because at the end of the five-year contract, I was assessing the professional response to the book had been very good with the, uh, the nine reviews by the philosophy PhDs had been, been published, and I was, uh, was pleased with that, as was uh, my, my publisher. The book had also sold well in the, uh, the general intellectual market. And so the question I faced was what to do uh, once the five-year contract was up, and uh, quite frankly, the most important issue was money. Money was the decisive issue. Uh, when you go with another publisher, royalties are typically quite low, 10 to 15% of uh, net sales, depending on what, what you can negotiate, but that's pretty pretty standard. But once the initial costs of the producing a book are covered, which of course can be considerable, and uh, publishers lose money on lots and lots of books, the 85 or 90% uh, that the publisher gets on net sales, you know, once those initial costs of producing the book are covered, if the book is selling well, that is a huge chunk of money, and that's where the publishers make their make their profits. So I decided then at that point, since the book was selling well, the contract was up, and it had been reviewed well, that what I would do with two colleagues of mine who had publishing and editing experience 
was to uh, start Occam's Razor, and uh, uh, we jointly produced the expanded edition of the book, which came out in 2011. Now, I actually recommend that publishing strategy for authors uh, with successful books, or if you think uh, and you're quite confident that you have a, a, a good book. First, if you can, go with a traditional publisher. Get them to do the editing and the review and the production and absorb the marketing, because they've got the editing and production and marketing expertise, and that's uh, on the division of labor what a standard publisher can offer. But make sure in your contract you have a time limit in the in your contract. Then if the reviews and sales are strong, work with colleagues who know what they're doing and self-publish to get the, the higher pro profits because that way you get the best of both worlds. You get the academic peer review and you get the commercial mark. And, and my, much of my work, I'm trying to, uh, to straddle, straddle that divide. And of course, one more caveat here. Uh, all of us want to be published by the most prestigious publishers that we can. Cuck here, though, seems to be making heavy weather of a non-issue. We know that many great books historically and in our own times are being published by little-known publishers and are being self-published. And at the same time, there's many mediocre and frankly crappy books that are coming out from publishers with generally solid reputations. There's lots of good amateur stuff and lots of bad professional stuff. Many great works in history and today are being created by amateurs and credentialism is I think getting weaker. Smart, some of the smartest people in the world do not have PhDs and frankly some people with PhDs are not that impressive. What that means that is that all of us need to use our own best judgment and give each serious argument or each serious book a, a, a fair hearing. Uh, there's really no room for ad homonyms uh, based on cheap credentialing. All right, uh, one more thing. There is one thing that I think Cuck got right, and I'll flag it again here. There is a mistaken credit in the book. This was actually pointed out to me about five years ago by a careful reader, and the story is this. There's a Foucault scholar, Todd May, Professor Todd May. He wrote a very good book about Foucault that I read from and learned a lot. He presents a summary statement about what uh, Foucault's philosophical themes amount to him, and I credit uh, Foucault with that rather than Todd May. Now, an alert reader pointed that out to me in 2015 when that was pointed out to me. I acknowledged it publicly, and I posted the correction in the Erratus Erection uh, on the Public Explaining Postmodernism web page. So there is that. But I would say, you know, um, you know, this is part of the standard uh, process. In my Explaining Postmodernism book, there are 325 references and footnotes, and after 20 years now of investigation and scrutiny of the text, much of it by unfriendly readers. That's the only mistake that was found, as not to shrug off the error. But that's, of course, how the research and debate and self-correcting process goes. And I offer an invitation. Uh, any other corrections anyone finds in the book, please do let me know, and uh, I will acknowledge them and correct them. And I thank the first person who pointed that mistake out to me in 2015. So, uh, at around the 30-minute mark in his podcast review, uh, Cuck seems to be transitioning to a uh, discussion of Jordan B. Peterson. Jordan Peterson, of course, is a big boy, so I stopped listening at about that point, and I assume uh, Peterson can take up any issues uh, Cuck has raised for him. We all know what true crime is. 
But what about untrue crime? These are the true stories of alleged crimes which turned out to not have happened at all. The true stories of innocent people whose lives have been ripped apart and who have not been allowed to tell their stories until now. Listen to Untrue Crime on the Possibly Correct Network as Diana Davison sheds light onto cases where reputations have been ruined, careers have been destroyed and countless lies have been told. Find out what really happens when the finger of blame points to someone who's innocent. Subscribe to the Untrue Crime Podcast by going to www.untruecrimepodcast.com. You can check out all of our podcasts by following Possibly Correct on Minds.com. Now back to the podcast. Turning now to a trio of younger thinkers who also review and critique my Explaining Postmodernism book. They uh, uh, go by the group name Multiversity. They describe themselves as, quote, a former anarcho-capitalist, a former anarcho-communist, and a cypherpunk, unquote. I'm not sure which is which, but their names are Ariel Friedman, Katie Kelly, and Chris Guida. I'll put their uh, uh, various Twitter handles and so forth uh, in the in the, sh- the notes for the podcast. And I want to say that while they are critical of parts of my book, I very much enjoyed listening to their podcast discussion, largely because they are engaging in what I think of as like an ideal college seminar. They are attentive. They've done their homework. They're using good method of uh, attending to the text. They're aware of the controversies over each of the major figures. They've done a lot of reading and a lot of deep thinking. They respectfully disagree sometimes with each other. And they also are uh, quite open about saying where they have not read a particular thing, and so they're properly agnostic. They do a very good summary for the first 45 minutes or so of their their discussion, going on a historical march through uh, the major modernist and postmodernist thinkers, Kant, Hegel, Nietzsche, Rousseau, a very interesting discussion of Herder, Heidegger, and then of course getting into more contemporary times, Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, Jordan Peterson, me. Uh, Slavoj Zizek as well. They're directly focused on me and my book at about the 48-minute mark, and uh, even though they agree with me sometimes and disagree with me sometimes, I have to say the criticisms are well-raised and thoughtful, so this is a very good effort. They're also very much aware of Cuck philosophers' uh, more hostile attack on me, so they spend some time talking about that, assessing it, going through the issues. Is Kant properly a counter-enlightenment figure or not, or is he more an enlightenment figure or not? In uh, Hicks's presentation of Kant and the major figures, is he oversimplifying them, or is he properly presenting an essentialized version of the two? Is Hicks boiling the Enlightenment down to just a position about realism? So if you abandon realism, suddenly you're not an Enlightenment philosopher anymore. Or is he saying that the Enlightenment, particularly in the case of Kant, Kant is dropping a seed against realism, and once that seed grows, that's to say the realism 
or counter-realism, counter uh, anti-realism arises, the rest gets worked out later, and I'm definitely on that latter position. They are nicely attentive to a distinction between the external and the objective. We spend a lot of time having to get our terminology straight here. So if Kant, for example, is saying we can't know the external world, does that necessarily mean that we can't be objective because we don't necessarily want to conflate those two concepts and i think that's that's an important distinction and a lot more to be said here but i do think that uh, one important thing is that uh, kant is redefining objective to mean a kind of collective or universal subjectivism so there's a good interesting discussion of of that one about modernism and the modern enlightenment project uh, particularly its emphasis on empiricism and rationalism scientific method and and so on does modernism amount merely to those or or are there other elements necessarily there what about the views of human nature the meta ethics and the, the political philosophy and social philosophy as well often uh, post Modernists will focus simply on the uh, the more epistemological issues, but of course it's an open question about how broadly we want to cast the modernist net. When we are assessing the Enlightenment and modernism, and if we want to say it's been a failure, so we need to to move on, well, was it really a failure? And uh, if we're going to say that it was a failure, do we mean merely that it was a, a failure theoretically, or that it was a failure in its applications and in practice? And the multiversity crew are very good at uh, making the distinction, saying, look, we uh, do have to say that it seems like modernism and the Enlightenment have enormous practical achievements right, uh, to, their, to their credit. And uh, how much weight can we put on that in saying there's got to be something correct about it and that maybe perhaps there's just some theoretical weaknesses that are being exploited and that's where we need to do our, our work. If we're going to start talking about the counter-enlightenment, is it proper to, to assign Kant as the first counter-enlightenment? I would just point out parenthetically that in my book, I do historically start the counter-enlightenment with Rousseau, who was a generation before Kant. But I think epistemologically, Kant is the turning point toward the counter-enlightenment. And when, uh, more on the value issues, Rousseau is the, is the turning point. But my uh, subtitle of my book does include Rousseau. It doesn't mention Kant. So uh, probably Rousseau is the more likely major figure to have the counter-enlightenment beginning. They also raise the questions about my, my credibility. Uh, they raise good questions. You know, he has his degree in philosophy, a PhD, philosophy professor. He's got various publications in academic and other journals and so on. And... Uh, noting the publisher, but of course they quite rightly point out that this is not an exercise in appeal to authority. Uh, degrees and positions don't matter, the arguments matter, nor should it be a matter of ad hominem. You have to actually address the arguments, which is what they proceed to do. All right, one of the major criticisms they make, and this is one that they uh, they seem to agree with uh, the Koch philosopher about, has to do with my categorization of um, Andrea Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon. 
And what uh, Cuck and the multiversity people will quite rightly do is uh, say that they can be categorized as realists, given some of the things that they say. They can be uh, categorized as radical feminists or as egalitarian feminists, right, and so on. So where, uh, where is Hicks coming from, and is he correct in saying that they are postmodern? Now, I would uh, agree entirely that uh, both have been against some elements of postmodernist philosophy. So I agree with Cuck. I agree with uh, multiversity right on, on the things that they will cite. That's correct to do so. But let me uh, flesh out a little the, uh, the argument. I do have some quotations in the book from Dworkin and McKinnon and some sites there that can be followed up. But let's rehearse and uh, uh, some of that and, and flesh things out. Because again, like, uh, you know, modernism and postmodernism and pre-modernism and the Enlightenment, feminism is another extraordinarily broad label. And we know that there are many subversions and the taxonomy can get very complicated. So just on the issue of the status of women, this is how I think of it. What is characteristic of modernism with respect to women is to say that there is a reality here. Women are in fact rational human beings and they should be equally free with men. You can find this being articulated in the late 1700s, certainly on into the 1800s classic era of, of the Enlightenment, and that the universal principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness should be afforded to women just as much as they are to men. So that's classic modernism. Further, women are individuals. They have their own minds. They have their own bodies. They should be autonomous and self-responsible with respect to both of them. Further, an interesting modernist position has to do with men and women relations, that there should be a, a harmony. Men and women come together to mutual benefit, mutual advantage, mutual pleasure, and that this should be based on respect and when deserved admiration. So that then is to say a modernist feminist, right? Uh, and this is sometimes we say this is enlightenment feminism or liberal feminism or individualist feminism. It's really saying three things, that there is a, a reality about the nature of women, that they are rational, that there are universal facts about women. There's an individualism and there's a harmonious uh, social relationship thesis about women as well. And all of that is in contrast to what we would recognize as a pre-modernist position on the nature of women. That according to revealed truths and tradition, women are inferior and they should be obedient. They should know their place in the hierarchy and it's very far from being at the top of the hierarchy. Further, most pre-modern thinkers and intellectuals and, and traditions will say that women are not uh, rational or not fully capable of objective thought. They, uh, they can't be trusted with full self-responsibility or be given freedom. At a minimalist, they need paternalist care, and in stronger forms, of course, they need patriarchal subordination. They should serve right, others, and they should do their duties. That then is to say that the modernist position and the pre-modernist position are quite opposed to each other. The modernists are, 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 are saying that really women are rational and should be equally 
free. Women are individuals. Men and women's relations should be based on mutual respect and, and, and deserved admiration. And that's a, that's a major break and a revolution against pre-modern philosophy. Now, what I'm taking to be characteristic of postmodernism is a rejection of both pre-modernism and modernism. Instead of saying that there is a reality about the nature of women, whether the pre-modernist or the, the modernist, right? What we call human nature really just is social construction, right? There is no necessary biological nature or underwritten by God nature. Instead, social constructionism is a third and distinctive position. So anybody who is advocating a strong social constructionism with respect to you know, women's identity, their social status, male identity and its social status, that is not a modernist position, it's not a, po a pre-modernist position, it's a post-modernist position. Secondly, I take to be a post-modernist position any position that says human beings are fundamentally collectivist or collectivized being, that in this social co uh, construction that's going on, we're first and foremost not individuals, but rather we are part of a larger group. We are male, right, or we are female more than we are individual human beings who say happen to be male or or female. Thirdly, I take as postmodernism a rejection both of kind of top-down obedience and authority relations, but also a rejection of full individualistic self-responsibility and freedom, and the idea that uh, human relations should be zero-sum, not zero-sum rather, but mutually beneficial. So any postmodern position that argues for a much more cynical and jaded thesis about human nations, that fundamentally it's all about amoral power conflicts and that human beings are divided into adversarial groups, that is a postmodern position. Now, more specifically then, before I go to that more specific point, let me just say that Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin, in the books that I cite, uh, Catherine McKinnon's Only Words, Harvard University Press, 1993, I think, and Andrea Dworkin's Intercourse, published in the late 80s, I think, 1987 to be specific, uh, they do go out of their way to argue that human social identity is constructed. Maleness and femaleness are constructed. And that's one of their major arguments against pornography, that it contributes to what they take to be a maladjusted adversarial social construction. They don't present human beings, males and females, as autonomous individuals with their own minds. Instead, they portray them as collective beings. There's the male experience, the female experience, we're all born into it, and that's our, our consciousness is constructed that way. They do not portray male-female relations in any positive, harmonious respect. It's unrelievedly adversarial and conflictual and a matter of patriarchal power. That's where all of that right comes from. So uh, on those scores, I was to say, there's not to say there are on, on other issues that they will sound non-fully postmodern themes, but on those ones, they are squarely on my interpretation, swimming in the postmodern lake. On pornography in particular, if you know the argument 
ancient that we get from the pre-moderns, for example, is to say that sex really is low, it's dirty, and pornography is objectively bad and dangerous, so it should be censored. All right, that's the pre-modern argument we're all familiar with. The moderns will come along and say, no, 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 sex is, can be healthy and beautiful and fun. And of course, some pornography is gross, but some of it is erotica and lovely and an enhancement. But bottom line, each individual should be free to make his or her own self-responsible decisions about whether to consume pornography or not. Absolutely no censorship. A postmodern argument that both McKinnon and Dworkin are signing up to is not a modernist argument. It's not a pre-modern argument. Rather, they're saying that postmodernism, rather, they're saying that porn is a kind of language, but it's a language that constructs male identities and female identities and one that puts the two groups into adversarial relations, and so it should be censored on that grounds. And that strikes me as a very distinct pattern of argument, one that's neither modernist nor pre-modernist. All right. Along the way, uh, I really do want to recommend to my listeners that uh, Multiversity get your attention. The Multiversity trio do raise lots of good questions. A fascinating discussion about whether the left has a, uh, leftism has a pedophilia problem particularly back in the 1960s and 70s when most, if not, or many rather, if not most of the major left thinkers were coming out in favor of pederasty and, uh, and, and for overturning laws against uh, sex with children. The very fascinating question that we all should still be grappling with, which is uh, why fascism in our generation is a dirty word, but communism is not a dirty word. Whether uh, the phrase that Jordan Peterson is particularly famous for or for giving great cultural cachet, postmodern rather neo-Marxism, whether postmodern neo-Marxism really is a thing or whether it is, it's distinct, uh, I'll just say quickly, I think there is a kind of postmodern neo-Marxism. It's one of the substrands, but it should be distinct from neo-Marxism and from cultural Marxism. There's another whole taxonomy that needs to be worked out there. And that, and I think, in our generation, postmodern neo-Marxism is uh, less a threat than some forms of neo-Rousseauian thinker that I think are more prevalent right now. And then uh, the, a big issue, is uh, postmodernism only a front for socialism? Uh, the multiversity thinkers think that it's not, and I would have to say that I agree with them. I do think that the front for socialism version of postmodernism is one of several versions. In my book, I think there are five major substrands of postmodernism. I lay them out in, uh, in chapter six, and only three of them are politicized versions of, uh, of postmodernism or of socialism, rather. So I'm going to end on that point. I, I recommend uh, to my listeners, do give Cuck Philosopher a listen, especially give the multiversity people a listen. Compare the methods that uh, both critics uh, are using. And of course, as always, make up your own independent judgment. The host of the Open College podcast, Dr. Stephen Hicks is a renowned philosopher and author. His field of study and insights into postmodernism explain how it has become one of the most powerful intellectual movements of our time and what that actually means. If you'd like to access more information from Dr. Hicks himself, 
then check out his website at www.stephenhicks.org. You'll be able to find details on his latest publications, courses, and philosophical information concerning business ethics, education, intellectual history, and religion. To stay up to date with the latest from Stephen Hicks himself, make sure you've subscribed to the Open College Podcast feed and follow at Open College Podcast on all your favorite social networks. And while you're online, please leave the show a review on iTunes and Stitcher.